I'm in Memphis with Mark Hummel. He's been kind enough to sit with me. I haven't done an interview in weeks because of work commitments, and um, it's kind of neat to get back into it. I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you. So thank, thank you for you, coming Marco. here. And, and you're here for the Blues Music Awards and on, with a number of nominations tonight. Yeah, we have uh, four, if you include RW's nomination. Which is pretty because impressive. he's the bass player. Right. Uh, he's nominated for bass player. I'm nominated for harmonica. The band is nominated for best traditional blues band and best traditional blues album. So how does that feel? Uh, it was a real, real nice surprise. It, it's still a surprise to you? It's always a surprise to me. Because you've had a number of nominations, No, right? I, it's always a surprise. Well, that's nice. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not somebody that goes, oh, God, I'm going to get all these awards. I never look at it like that. So tell me about that journey to where you are today. But I know we've discussed this before. You were born in Connecticut. Yeah. How did you get into music? Uh, I got into it mainly, well, I mean, I got into it as a kid somewhat, but it wasn't really till I was a teenager that I really uh, seemed to gravitate towards music. Was there a moment? You know, I'd say the hippie era, you know, I was only about 13 or something, but I'd see in the hippie era, I was really kind of taken with anything that would drive my parents out of the bedroom. And, <laughs> and you know, and I was on drugs and alcohol, and <laughs> so it all just sounded good. <laughs> and what was that? Was the harmonica the first thing, or how did that evolve? Well, I think I was into guitar at first. I liked rap, loud blues rock guitar. Give me an example. Uh, Blue Cheer, Big Brother and the Holding <laughs> Company, uh, you know, Cream, Jimi Hendrix, you know, all the typical rock bands, I think, you know, of the era. Um, but it was like I kept hearing something that was, you know, blues influenced in there. Right. And somehow I kept seeing Willie Dixon's name and, McKinley Morganfield and Chester Burnett, you know, in the credits. And those were always the songs I liked. So eventually it kind of led me back to, I bought a Willie Dixon album on Columbia that came out and uh, somebody lent me a Brownie and Sonny album and uh, a B.B. King album that I bought. And I started borrowing records from the library, you know, chess records that were at the library at the time. Uh, and basically, I just got into the originators. And when I heard that, it was kind of like I went, wow, this is really, this is cool stuff. Did, did the harmonica come naturally to you? How difficult was it? The that? harmonica was really something I, like I say, the guitar was kind of the thing that caught my ear. But then I heard the harmonica, you know, like I heard people like Jack Bruce, you know, playing on, you know, Cream Records and, and then I think eventually John Mayall and then somebody turned me on to Paul Butterfield and James Cotton. And when I heard James Cotton, I was just like, wow, this is really it. <laughs> and then I heard Lil Walter and I heard Sonny Boy. And, and uh, the first guys I saw were Sonny and Brownie at the Ashgrove. And then I saw James Cotton right on the heels of that and Charlie Musselwhite on the heels of that. And, and what impact did that have on you? To see these people. Seeing those guys? Yeah. Oh, everything. Yeah, I was just so taken with it. And I mean, my mother would drive me to the gigs and drop me off. And so, you know, I have her to thank for <laughs> for being supportive in that regard. Yeah, really. And, and uh, 
and you know, I mean, uh, yeah, I was just, there was something about the mystery of the harmonica. I think because you can't see it, you know, it was all they were holding these microphones and and had their hands wrapped around the mic and the harp and and the fact that you couldn't see it and all these sounds would come out really just it was real mysterious to me and it was like I wanted to unlock the secret. Okay, so these people, I mean these are the the greats of the harmonica that you yeah. you mentioned. Yeah. Are there anything that you saw back then that you thought, gee, I wish I could figure out how to do that? that you oh, all kinds of stuff. But have you figured that out yet? Oh, of course. Okay. Yeah. All, like, is there <laughs> yeah. anything that you thought, I still don't know how to do I that? I mean, the only things maybe there were some things Sonny Terry did that uh, that I never could unlock. Really? Yeah. Sonny Terry was really, uh, he was so unique sounding. And there was just, there was a, you know, there was a way he played that it was almost very few people, you know, I mean, I know a few friends, Joe Felisco and, uh, oh, uh, my friend Gary, Sonny Jr., that, you know, that really have unlocked kind of that Sonny Terry thing. It wasn't something I went after, though, either. Right. I was really more electric harmonica. The amplified harmonica was more kind of my thing. Right. And so that's why James Cotton was such a huge influencer. You know, at the time, Paul Butterfield and Muscle White were were big influences. And just anyone that played through an amp, that was kind of... But tell me, okay, so sound. tell me about that, because sound is such a big deal yeah. in any instrument, but in, in harmonica. And, and so you have a harmonica, you have the way you play it, the way you shape your mouth, whatever, mm -hmm. your breathing technique. You also have a microphone and an amplifier. Mm -hmm. So if we would break it down into percentages. Of uh, what's what? Yeah, of, of how it all adds up to your sound, which is now the Mark Hummel harmonica sound. How much of that is because of the amp that you use? And how oh, you know, it's, you know, it's funny because I just had Magic Dick on a, a tour we were doing last, you know, a couple weeks ago. And, and, uh, and, and you know, he pulled me aside and he goes, you know, I've really been listening to little Walter and, and noticing how much of that sound was from him and not from the amplifier. Mm -hmm. And that's a real interesting thing to me because he's right. I mean, I was listening to Little Walter fairly recently and noticing how his sound is so much his sound. It was not from the amplifier, mm -hmm. near as much as people give it credit for. And uh, but that would make sense, right? Like with it any does instrument. make sense, but I'm saying somebody, you know, I mean, that's starting out on the harmonica or even been playing for a long time. A lot of times, you're going after that amplifier sound as opposed to the actual sound that the person is getting. Right. It's like two really different things. In other words, a lot of what you're getting is through your, it's through your jaw, your tongue, whether your tongue's on the harp or not. Uh, you know, just the resonance of the, the mouth cavity, you know, throat, chest, you know, it, it is interesting how much is from the person and not from the mic and not from the amp. Having said that, when you were growing up and learning how to play... I didn't think that back then. Oh, really? So was it no. about finding that I mic? I thought it was all about the amp and the mic, yeah. And how long did it take you to find? Like, how, how do you know the sound? Do you know in your mind this is the sound that I want to go after? You know, I'm really one of those people that when I'm when I'm uh, going to a gig or something, a lot of times I'll just pick an amp last minute. 
I'm serious. I've got about four or five amps I okay. play through, and it's like a lot of times I'll just go, well, I think I'm going to go for this tonight, or I'm going to go for this tonight. I don't play the same amp all the time. I don't play the same mics all the time. So the choice Definitely of, the amps change a lot. And that decision to make take this amp over that is what? It's the room. Okay, so the room has a huge The room to do has with a lot to do with it. It's just my mood. I mean, it is a lot of different things. You know. And at what point did you think... I've got about four amps that I play through on a fairly regular basis. There's two at home that I play through because they're older amps and they're more broken down. You know, like one I'm having to get serviced here pretty soon. But, you know, part of it is they're just more fragile. Right. And then those are the ones I use at home. And then there's ones I take on the road. They're a little more sturdy. But how different is the sound? Pretty different to me. Okay, you so know. it's partly a mood of I want to hear this tonight. I mean, yeah. I don't know. If... Yeah, I mean, my favorite amps are the ones at home. But you don't want to have the audience come to your place. Well, no, I'm saying I take them to the gigs <laughs> yeah, yeah. at home. I don't take them on the road oh, okay, because okay, all yeah. the bouncing around right. in the trailer. You know, because you you put an amp in a trailer, it's going to shake the tubes up, and you know. It's just, it's not as, it's it's hard on an amp. Okay, put, so it, how, put it in the back of a van or a back of a trailer and drive it all right. around the country. But the microphone is huge too. Microphone's a big part. I mean, I have one type of mic that I use. Uh, I tend to use something called a, a CR control reluctance or a CM controlled magnetic microphones that are usually old, uh, sure microphones like the green bullets and they're they're cartridges from the green bullets but usually the very old ones so how long did it take you to determine this is really the microphone you want to go after you know again with the mics it's been that's been a real kind of microphones have been a real kind of trial and error thing where i would try a lot of different microphones i've gone through a lot of different mics and a lot of different amps and you know. I would presume, I mean, I've known you since, I think, 2002, mm-hmm. um, but you've been playing for... 47 30, years. 47 years. How much of your sound has changed over that time? I mean, it would be silly if it hadn't, but... You know, it's weird. I'm, in certain respects, there's a lot of things that are still in place from a long time ago, and then in other ways, it's completely different. So... I, it's weird. I mean, I can listen to old tapes of myself from the 80s and I'll go, oh yeah, I still do that liquor, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, occasionally I'll find stuff like that. But, you know, I mean, I've been so serious about the harmonica and about blues harmonica. And, uh, you know, I, I really listened to a lot over the years. I mean, I, I started listening to every harmonica player that I could get my hands on in terms of, you know, records and stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I listened to, you know, everything from Charlie McCoy to Lee Oscar to Magic Dick to Little Walter to Jerry McCain to, you know, Sam Myers to, uh, you know, Sonny, both Sonny Boys, Jimmy Reed, Junior Parker. I mean, it's such a wide number of harmonica players that I was listening to in the very beginning. you know, and then I got a little more selective, and I kind of stopped listening to the white guys. I think early on, 
and and it was it was more the older black guys that I was listening to. And selective, and so as to define your sound or just personal taste? I was just personal taste. You know, I think the other thing is I got to a point where I was like, I'm not going to listen to guys that could walk into the gig. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, you know, I didn't want, you know, Magic or, 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 or Kim Wilson or Rod Piazza or whatever come into the gig and go, oh, yeah, listen to them copy my stuff, you know? So Okay, so tell me about so that. So it was kind of like, you know, guys that were kind of more around my age or a little bit older, you know, I didn't really want to copy them. So, But the learning process is, in the beginning, copying, right? Like, yeah, it definitely is for me, yeah. And then how do you make that copy? So you, you learn the lick, or you hear something, you learn it over and over again, and then while you're playing, sometimes it just slips out, or I don't know if it's conscious or not. It's weird. It's not really conscious. I mean, you know, my my really big thing about learning was when I started, I was literally pulling apart records note by note. You know, I was learning everything note for note. Right. So I would learn entire solos and records and, you know, I mean, I'd learn a whole side of a record note for note, you know. And, and that, that was like Little Walter, Big Walter, George Smith, Sonny Boy, you know, I mean, Junior Parker, all these guys, you know, Jimmy Reed. I mean, not Jimmy Reed as much, but all the others, you know, James Cotton. I was really learning everything note for note. So I know you went to see a lot of these people. I don't know how open they were to sharing their techniques. And You know, it was weird. I mean, you wouldn't go up to James Cotton and go, hey, man, show me what you played. Because most, most of these guys, they would go, I don't remember what I played. <laughs> And that's the truth. Right. I mean, little Walter never repeated himself. You know, he really never repeated himself. You know, he couldn't tell you what he played. You know, and to be honest with you, I mean, the more longer you play, the less you remember. I don't remember half the stuff I played. <laughs> I mean, seriously, yeah, yeah. you just don't. Was there anybody who gave you advice or technique or anything that? Oh, every a lot of people did. Yeah, anything I mean, that stands true today that you would share with young players. Well, I mean, you know, all the people that I've met and worked with, I think I've gotten advice from in some kind of way or another. You know, um, like I say, me and you know, me and Magic Dick talk about technique probably more than most heart players I know. But, uh, you know, Ch Charlie Musselwhite and, and uh, James Cotton and, uh, you know, Lee Oscar, Snooky Pryor, uh, you know, Sam Myers. I mean, all these guys I've been around. Mm -hmm. Carrie Bell, you know. So, I mean, I was around them enough that if I wanted to ask them questions, I mean, I asked Cotton a lot of questions, I remember you know, when I started working with him. And, uh, you know, I would ask him questions more about Little Walter than anything else. That's kind of, I guess, <laughs> it's been an ongoing obsession, you know. <laughs> but not just With yourself. a guy like Cotton that knew both Sonny Boy and, and Little Walter, it's like, I mean, why would you not ask questions mm -hmm. of these guys? And, and, and Cotton was very forthcoming about, you know, what he knew. And did he feel the same way about Little Walter? Oh, God, he was completely enamored with him. Yeah. I mean, he told me some great stories about Cotton. 
I mean, about little Walter. He right. said, he basically said, you know, he made him want to just throw his harmonicas away. He said the one time, the first time he saw him, you know, he said, Walter came in the club, blasted two, a woman holding him up with each arm, you know, and, and, and got on stage and just blew him away. And he said he was sitting in the booth basically just bawling because he was so depressed <laughs> and, and blown away and just floored, you know. Is there, is there anybody else out there that you feel that way about that just... Uh, you know, the longer I play, the less I feel that way. Um, but, I mean, you know, there's always people. I mean, you know, this last sets of blowouts I did, I mean, you know, two of the guys on it were just such, you know, Jason Ricci and, and, and Howard Levy, even though it's not my style, mm -hmm. their, their technical level is so astounding. It's hard not to be kind of just blown away and, and saying, these guys are deadly serious about the harmonica. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not my style, and in a way, I'm kind of like glad that it's not my style because if it was, I would be very depressed <laughs> like that. But you know, it's like I mean, on a technical note, it's it's mind-boggling. So the blowout yeah. is one of your projects, and you're involved yeah. in a few different things. One is your band, and I'm not sure if that's still your band, but you also have the. The Golden State is more my band of late. Okay, so that's Golden the band State you're touring Longstar. with, yeah. with Anson and R.W. Yeah, and... that's really the main thing I'm touring with. Right, and then you also, in January every year... Yeah, and I, and I do blowouts through the year, too. Okay. I mean, we did blowouts on this last Golden State tour. So can you explain the, um, the blowout concept for anybody who might not know? Well, I mean, what I do is, and I've been doing this since 1991, is, is I get together three... It's anywhere between two and three other harmonica players besides myself. And we all play together doing partition sets over a 90-minute set. So mm. we might do 30 minutes each, you know, back-to-back -back in a 90-minute set. Uh, we might do 10 minutes each, depending on the number of harmonica players. And then uh, the band, which is either gold, Golden State Lone Star Band, backs everyone up, or the Blues Survivors might back everybody up. It just depends uh, on whether it's in California or the East Coast or wherever. Uh, and I've been doing these, you know, with all these different harmonica players over the years. And this is like the show for any harmonica player. This is like the best of the best that you do really every is. year. Yeah, it's it's a real all star cast of. Harmonica players, yeah. Anybody you've never been able to get? Stevie Wonder. <laughs> he hasn't Twitch said Steelman's, <laughs> you know, who's gone now. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, I never really tried to get those guys. Uh, there's a few people. I mean, I tried to get some rock star guys just to kind of lend uh, draw to the thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I think Steven Tyler one time I sent off an email to and never heard word back, you know. But... I mean, you know, those are guys that, as harmonica players, are not that impressive to me. Uh, but they would definitely lend name recognition right. to it. So, you know, I mean... I know Mick, you choose... Mick Jagger, you know. I mean, those are guys that, you know, if, yeah. if you were going to go for really trying to bring in some people, that's, that's, those are the kind of names you'd go for. But, I mean, you know, they're not 
people that I'm really concentrating on. But I remember seeing one with Magic Dick, um, Jerry Portnoy, yourself, and... Lee Oscar. Lee Oscar. Right. I mean, that was pretty wild because it was very different yeah. types of playing. And I presume yeah. that's what you go And that's after. kind of my goal. My goal is always to kind of bring in a real uh, conscious kind of contrast of players. You don't, I mean, you know, I've done things like where I had Rick Estrin and Kim Wilson and Rod Piazza all, in a way, too much in the same bag. Mm -hmm. And it was a great show, and it actually was pretty varied in its own kind of way, but it still was a bunch of guys that kind of all listened to the same people. Right. Uh, and in a way, you don't want to do that too much because, you know, the wider variety you have, the, the more variety of audience you can bring in i mean i know you're the one who picks it so you mm -hmm. have a pretty good idea what you're getting but did anybody surprise you in a really positive way that just thought i'll try this person and then just kind of got blown well, away well I, I i like i say the one this year with 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 uh i really thought the one with jason and and howard was pretty amazing in terms of contrast. And I did it more as a jazz show. Mm -hmm. I didn't call, even call it a blues show. I called it a, um, you know, uh, the ultimate harmonica blowout was what I called it instead of blues harmonica blowout. And the reason I called it that was because, you know, two guys that are on that kind of level, you know, I had Corky Siegel, who was more of the older older guy in the, in the group, you know, that's mm -hmm. pretty varied as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, so I mean, those are the kind of kind of ideas I try to come up with. But see, like next year, I'm going to go for something completely different, in the sense that I'm not concentrating as heavy on the harp, even though the harmonica is going to back each of these guys. I'm actually featuring some singers. Yeah. So I'm bringing in Dietra Farr. I'm bringing in Oscar Wilson from Cashbox Kings, John Primer from, you know, Chicago, uh, Billy Boy again. You know, will be the older, the older uh, wow. guy on the group. You know, but uh, Billy Flynn. You know, and I and I'm gonna have Billy Flynn and me and Billy Boy all play harmonica behind these singers, and I think it'll be really interesting like that because the idea is to have almost the harmonica as a backup instrument as opposed to the front instrument. Even though it'll be out front, it'll be more of a backup behind the vocalist. So I think that'll be a real interesting show, and 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 featuring Chicago, mm -hmm. you know, blues type folks. You know? Wow! Is it easy for you to come up with ideas? I think my wife Alexis kind of gave me that idea of the singers. <laughs> right. Yeah. Enough of the harmonica. Yeah. No, well, I mean, I love that idea because I love backing up people. I really do. I, I that that's something that. I mean, I've done off and on for years. But this is where you yeah. come from initially, right? This is where I come from, yeah. So when you were doing that, what, how did you decide to go out on your own and start a band and do... Well, I mean, I started the Blues Survivors as a band behind this guy, Mississippi Johnny Waters. And so it started as, as a backup kind of situation for me. Right. Even though it was a band that I organized and led it was him out front. And, and, and so again, you know, this is how I started. I started as a guy playing the harmonica behind somebody. And, and slowly, 
me and Johnny kind of went in a little bit different directions where he kind of started to want to do, instead of Chicago blues like B.B. King and, I mean, Muddy Waters and Otis Rush, he wanted to go B.B. King and Chuck Berry. And when he went off in that direction, it left me with less to do on the harmonica. So that's kind of where I started wanting to be the front man a little more so that I could still do my little Walter songs, you know. That was kind of what it was in Sonny Boy stuff. So that was kind of, it was almost kind of out of necessity that I Was became. that a difficult transition? It was uh, a little disappointing, I guess, because I really loved playing behind Johnny doing the Chicago blues stuff. Right. But in terms of establishing your name, and I don't know if you were just It doing was this. difficult because Johnny was such a great singer. And I was not. <laughs> you know, I mean, singing is not something that came naturally for me. I hear a lot of people say that. Yeah, it wasn't natural. Like, I mean, there's guys like Curtis Salgado and Sugar Ray and Kim Wilson, and yeah. they have these golden throats, you know. They're just, they just have that knack for being able to sing. And, and for me, it was a lot more of a, you know, something I had to, I had to study with, vocal teachers and it just it just took a lot more uh effort on my part to become a better singer which is like learning another instrument it right? is and i think singing's the hardest thing there is yeah unless you're born with that golden throat like some of those people i think singing is something you have to really work at and i've had to work at it and how long did it take for you to feel comfortable with that oh i never have i've only felt comfortable in like spots, spots. Yeah, that's the best way to put it. In other words, you know, a lot of times it's like everything has to be right. The monitors have to be right. The audience has to feel right. But the monitors are everything for me. Mm -hmm. So if I got the monitors right, I feel like a good singer. But when the monitors aren't right, it's a struggle. And how That's the best way to put it. Does singing affect your playing at all? Yeah. I mean, the two things go hand in hand. Like I would imagine, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, I love it when I got that feeling like my singing and my playing are really in sync. That's what I really love. But it must have been hard when you first took But I do love singing. I, I, I don't want you to get the wrong no, idea. No, no. I do. It's, it's like a thrill when it's all right. When everything's really in, in place, it's really fun. But to, to start off and not feel comfortable singing and that to sucks. work really... Yeah, <laughs> it sucks. Yeah, but that's true of playing too. Oh, yeah, I mean, for you sure. know, there's times I, I just feel like I can't do anything right on the harmonica. So, you know, I mean. Really? At this oh, point? Oh, yeah, 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 sure. And what is that? What do you think it's that just is? It's like feeling off, feeling out of practice, you know, feeling like I can't get my sound the way I want it. And at this stage of the game, like. You know, it's like me and Rick Estrin talk about this all the time because Rick's my old friend. And it's like, you know, we talk about, he goes, you know, really. Like all that stuff, really, you don't, you know, nobody notices it but you. You know, he'll say stuff like that, and it's kind of true. Oh yeah, you know, I mean, we're our own worst critics. But there must be you other know. times when you think, man, I just nailed that show. Yeah, and, and people. And are... the weird thing is, you can nail it and not have people respond, <laughs> and you can nail it and and have people respond, and then you can really suck, and people respond. So how do you put, you never how know. do you process that? In other words, sometimes I don't really think any of it's really relevant. 
Right. <laughs> all that's relevant really is how I feel. Right. That's all. I mean, I can't put stock sometimes in the audience. I can't put stock in how I feel. It's like really all over the map. So when you have a crappy show and you think, oh man, I, I just didn't hit that the note on it. And somebody comes up to you and says, oh my that God. That was the greatest show I oh, ever yeah. saw. That happens all the time. And then you think what? You think it really doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I think it does, but it doesn't. Yeah. In other words, you know, my criticism of it is kind of invalid at this point. I was talking to a classical musician of, of some, some note. And he was talking about, you know, having good days and bad days, but basically that he's at a level where there's maybe a 20% difference one exactly. way or the other, and most people can't even tell. That's exactly it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's well, all nice I'm saying. It's nice to get to that point. It's a nice place to be at, but I'm just telling you, it's, it's interesting how what I've found in general is that a lot of times when people aren't responding, it's because they can't hear me well. Either that or I'm too damn loud. <laughs> one of the two things so that when everything's perfect in terms of the sound that's usually when people really get it more so you've been doing this for almost 50 years yeah. at one point you said I'm going to be a musician and make this a living and you've managed to do that did you ever have any other jobs? Uh, yeah I've ha I had part time jobs in the late 70s because of disco is that no, it was just because I was really young and starting out. I mean, it was in my early 20s, and and uh, it was just, you know, there wasn't enough. Yeah, you're right. It probably was disco because that was like the late 70s. It was really hard for blues bands to make any money. And did you yeah. think maybe I'm not going to be a musician at that no, point? No, I never thought that. So it was that if I have to play on the weekends and oh, this is man. just a hobby? I, I always worked. I always worked. Wow. Even even though I had part-time jobs, I would still do gigs all the time. With the goal that this will be a full-time gig. Yeah. I made up my mind at like 14, 15 years old I was going to be a harmonica player. But did you know what that meant? <laughs> I mean, kind of. I, I mean, you saw Sonny Terry and you, you saw yeah, James I mean, I, you know, I mean, I had really kind of fantasies about how it was all going to go because I thought at the time that guys like Muddy Waters and James Cotton, oh, well, not James, because I saw James on a Monday night for in front of 20 people, and I thought, well, I guess this is what I cracked it up to be. <laughs> but he played his ass off. He was, like, so heavy, you know. Like, he was just musically totally happening, totally entertaining. And I, I said to myself, this is what you got to do. You got to be always on, no matter the size of the crowd. You just want to always you know put on a great show but people like muddy waters you know i used to think those guys must have made huge money and it wasn't until later i remember when muddy died i think they interviewed uh peter wolf from jay giles and, the, and he talked about the very first time he saw those guys and they pulled up in this ratty old you know station wagon with all the gear like you know uh roped onto the top of the station wagon. They were staying at some motel with the motel's windows busted out. And, you know, it was like his picture was so vivid about what life on the road was like for, you know, Muddy and the band. It was like, it really just kind of dashed all my hopes of all the money I thought they were making. 
you know. <laughs> How did that make you feel? <laughs> it made me feel like I had a big uphill battle. But you did it, and you still And did I did it. do it, yeah. So, partly because of the blow-up, but partly not, I mean, you've gotten to work with, I presume, most of your heroes. A lot of my heroes, yeah. The majority of them, yeah. And now, close to 50 years into the business, mm -hmm. like you're kind of in that same league. Or do you look at it that way? You know, I don't look <clears throat> at it that way. That's the weird thing. I, I've really had a hard time being able to go, oh, yeah, I'm right up there with those guys. That's not where my head is at. Right. You know? I mean, that's just not where my head is at. But and when I think you go part of it's because I feel younger than a lot of the people I work with. Right. So even though I'm 61, it still feels like I'm kind of the kid. <laughs> and that sounds weird to say, but it's true, you know. Well, you do have this youthful. Do thing I? Yeah, good. you really do. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> glad that's kind of stuck with me. <laughs> and you yeah, still love what you do. And I do love what I do. Okay, so the other thing that yeah. you know you are known for at this point is that. You're still out on the road a lot. I am. And, you know, over the 15 or so years that I've been, you know, looking at the blues and documenting the blues, yeah. I mean, you were out there many, many years ago, and you're still out there doing, I don't know, if, as many shows, but probably close. And yeah. there's so many other bands who used to be on the road. would Have slowed down. Yeah, yeah. Considerably. That's true. How do you look at the road right now? Is it a... Uh, it's a really tough business as it's always been. That's how I look at it. I mean, I just go, hey, it's always been tough. I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, one thing that I think maybe has ended up being an advantage was that, you know, when I would go on record stores back 20 years ago, I'd never see my albums there. I'd see one Mark Hummel album there. You know what I mean? Right. And it was like, you know, everyone else, they'd have 20 albums, and I'd go, wow, how come I can't have distribution like this? Well, you know, because of that, I was always selling my stuff off the stage. Right. So none of that's new to me. Now everybody's in that boat. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So in a lot of ways, it's kind of like I've always been there, and everyone else is still just getting used to it. They're going, oh, man, i got to sell my stuff off the stage. That sucks. I can't sell them in the record stores. There are no record stores. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's like you go to your show and all of a sudden a record store pops up on stage. Right. With you. <laughs> and that's how everyone is now. Yeah. How many, how so many in a lot there? of ways, I mean, I'm kind of in this position where I was doing it way before everybody else was. So it's not news to me. But does it concern you with the way the industry is? Oh, how yeah. Things it's have concerning. Changed? It's very concerning. The only good thing is that our audience, the blues audience, still buys CDs. Right. We're lucky about that because a lot of people are only buying MP3s now. Right. Young kids, it's all MP3s. Nobody that's young is able to sell CDs. So how do you combat or how do you approach the change in business? Like what have you done differently in the last five you years? You know, now? I mean, I've really gotten into the internet. I'll say that. I mean, I'm all over Facebook. I'm all over Twitter. I mean, one thing about me that I've had over a lot of other people is I'm good at business mm -hmm. in terms of being out there and and being relentless in terms of, you know, business. So if you had... Making a... phone calls, sending emails. I've never been somebody that lays down on that stuff. So and I know calls. a lot of artists that don't follow up and don't, you know... They don't have anybody to do it for them, you know. 
I mean, I hire a publicist all the time. You know, I have a record company. You know, it's a small record company. Andrew's not, you know, Electrify Records is not Columbia Records, but it's, you know, it's still a record company. It's still somebody that will put my stuff out. And, and you've had a long relationship with and them. And me and Andrew have been working together 15 years. Yeah. Which is pretty significant. That's pretty good. But I love Andrew. He's a great guy. And, you know, it's not, he doesn't have the visibility that some people have, but, you know, he totally stands by me. Yeah. And so I give that a lot of credence because, you know, the one thing about Andrew is Snooky Pryor was the one that got me signed with him. And Snooky goes, he the only man that did everything he said he would do. You know, and that went a long way. Oh, for sure. Because I thought this guy's been with everybody. You know, Antones to J-O-B Records. You know, that's that's a you know long list of of artists that you know ABC, all kinds of people. You know, so that kind of stuff goes a long way for me. Yeah, integrity. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And there's very little integrity in this business. This is a rotten business to be in. After all this time, that's what you come away with. I still feel that way. I feel like it's such a cutthroat business, the music business. It really is. I mean, you know, I have a lot of dear friends that are in the music business, but there's, it's just I know the business left and right, and I know how club owners are. I know how record companies can be i know how radio can be and it's it's fickle it's extremely fickle even in the the world of the blues yeah if i was to ask you about your business model i mean you obviously have the discipline to make cold calls to make calls to people and not yeah not give up but what would what would be the business model that you you follow if i was to ask you advice on how am i going to make it in this crazy world of music what would you say to me? I'd say have very thick skin and, and, and believe in yourself, believe in your product. That's really, really important. Did you ever doubt that? Did you ever oh, I doubt it all the time. I still doubt it all the time. So how do you get over that? Uh, you just have to really kind of go down to the core of why you got into it. And I'm always able to go back to that eventually which is that the love of the music is the most important thing. The core of the music, which is, to me, it's black blues. You know, it's African-American blues. That's the core of the music. And, and if you can get to that point, if you can remember what that's about, then you have a really clear view of it. And when do you get there? Was it only on stage? Is it when you're practicing? By it's yourself? when I listen to music. It's 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 talking to people I know, you know. Uh, I mean, the, the the guys that I idolize, they didn't make money. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. The Muddy Waters and 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 Eddie Taylors and 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 uh, Jimmy Rogers. You know, BB King in his early years, they didn't make money. Bobby Blue Bland, you know, I mean, they, they had hits, but they never got paid. They got burned. What do you think? That's what, the reality. What do you think kept them going? It's just, I think it was the love of the music and the fact that there was nothing else they were going to do. Right. They just said, I, this is what I do. I'm going to accept it. I, I love what I do. I love the blues. I love the sound. I love, uh, 
you know, being on the road, even if it means, you know, sleeping on the floor, you know? I mean, that, that's, a hard, that's a hard thing to accept, but it's reality. Right. And you've got to deal with reality. <laughs> As Sam Miles, they don't know nothing about reality, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, that's kind of what it's all about, you know. But at this stage in the game, at this stage in your life, I know it's still tough because of the changing landscape. Yeah, but and it's really changed. But in some ways, are things better because you know better? Or am I, I think things are that? better on certain ways and worse on others. They're better in the sense that the blues has more visibility than it's ever had now. But they're way tougher in terms of that I see more money coming into the music. And because there's more money coming into it, there's people that are kind of in control that are trying to sort of put it down a certain path. And the path that, to me, I see it going is kind of far removed from the reality of the music. That's the best way of putting it. But you still love it. I still love it. I mean, I just think... You know, to me, blues is blues. It's not, it's not somebody trying to pan off rock. And I see a lot of that going on in this business. People going, no, this is blues. It's modern. It's this. It's short skirts, you know. <laughs> uh, I mean, I see that all the time. It's young. You know, it's not young. I mean, it was young maybe, you know, Lil Walter was young, but everybody else was middle-aged, you know. Let me ask you my and final... And most people that succeeded didn't succeed until they were older. Right. And that's something that these guys lose sight of, is that, that most of the musicians that were successful didn't succeed until they were in their 50s or 60s, sometimes 40s. Right. But, you know, if you had a hit when you were in your 20s, you still had to work till you were in your 60s to reap the benefits. That's reality. So when you look back on this journey... Do you, how do you look back on it? Do you think it's been like the most amazing opportunity? Well, I think there's a lot of things about it that were very amazing. I mean, the fact that I've been able to work with idols is definitely an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, all the, any kind of accolades I've gotten, the ones that meant the most were from the older guys. When the older, you know, black blues men would pat me on the back and go, man, you were blowing your ass off there. That's gold to me you know even winning an award doesn't mean anything next to that mm -hmm. that's how I look at it so my final question to you is your, your favorite moment what is it is it recording is it playing is it oh I have a lot of favorite moments but most of them were on stage most of them were maybe in the studio you know those are my favorite moments you know usually on stage you know, when just everything has fallen into place. And, you know, I mean, there's a certain magic that happens on stage. And, and, and it's like, you can't replicate it. It just happens when it happens. And when it happens, it's gold, mm -hmm. you know. And, that, and that's the best way of putting it, you know. And a, and a lot of times it's collaboration, you know. It's just getting together the right people in the right time. I mean, Golden State has been like that. That's been an amazing, Golden State Lone Star has been an amazing band, you know. To have players of, say, Anson, or Anson Funderburg or, or West Star on the drums, that caliber of musicians, they're like phenomenal. 
you know, and it's like when when we're really firing, it's heavy. And it's like the audience gets it, the band gets it. We all have respect for what happens when it really happens, you know. Well, thank you so much for spending this time. Good luck tonight. Thank you, Michael. And I, I always appreciate your I appreciate time. your interviews. You do good interviews. <laughs> thank you. A lot of people don't. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm afraid to say. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Well, thank you. Man.